Comedy of Errors by George Rothiger. Chapter 6. Metamorphosis. For the few short months that Stuart stayed with his mother's sister and her family in Glenside, he attended third grade at the local public school. His family reunited in October, moving into a second-story flat in the same school district so that Stuart could finish out the semester. After a troubling move from Glenside, the family's next move was to a back-bedroom apartment on 13th Street in North Philadelphia, a few doors east of the house occupied by Stuart's great-aunts, Lizzie and Emma. Stuart was then enrolled in January at the Simon Muir School, two blocks north of the family's small apartment. Stewart's and his parents moved there after his father had one day announced a move to what proved to be a rickety rooming house in Mount Holly, New Jersey. When they arrived there the next day, the toilets were backed up, and drainage from the sink above the ground floor apartment foamed up with suds in the kitchen sink. The family stayed there only one night before Dottie contacted her aunts for assistance. Lizzie knew of a furnished room with a kitchen for rent, three doors down from her, and so the family packed up its few belongings and took a cab to Philadelphia. Despite its small size and condition, the Littles occupied it immediately with the financial help of Dottie's aunts. The bedroom had two chairs, a cot, and a Murphy bed that could be pulled down at night and retracted into the wall during the day to provide places to stand or sit. The bedroom had been divided into two smaller rooms, the sleeping and living portion, and the tiny kitchen occupied by a small stove and a miniature refrigerator, as well as minimal storage space for food and utensils, which were also provided. Stewart's cot was tucked into the bump out for the bay window that overlooked a small garden in the rear of the building. A large Victorian table positioned to the right side of the room served multiple uses, including a place for eating, writing, and playing games. When the Murphy bed was pulled down and into place, there was no room to enter or exit from any side except from the left of the bed near the kitchen door, since all forms of entry were blocked by the cot, the chairs, and the table. In order for Stuart to lie down on the cot at night, he needed to walk across the bed when it was lowered. Stuart wasn't unhappy living there. He was glad to be reunited with both of his parents, and his father wasn't drinking. They had a radio and listened to Edgar Bergen and Charlene McCarthy on Sunday nights, mysteries and news about the war in Hungary, and the fairy tale wedding of the actress Grace Kelly to Prince Rainier of Monaco. Stuart understood that his father and mother had little money, but he was always fed lunch and dinner, as opposed to his mother who was losing weight and growing paler each day. His father ventured out daily in search of loans to pay for the food and rent. Stuart had his American bricks to play with and learned from his parents how to play rummy, hearts, pokers, and Canesto on the Murphy bed each evening using tattered decks of cards his mother had kept with her during the various moves. On Saturday night, Aunt Lizzie would buy the family ice cream cones from the candy store around the corner, and the old man who owned the house in which they lived would ask Stuart to run errands to the tobacco shop from which he ordered Uncle Jack's candy, otherwise known as chewing tobacco. On each of these trips, Uncle Jack would give Stuart a nickel which Stewart used to purchase between five and ten pieces of candy, depending on the type selected. The corner grocery store was where the family got their essentials, which included a lot of spaghetti, canned peas and corn, and ham ends, which were leftover portions of the boiled ham that could be sliced 
of a boiled ham that couldn't be sliced any further without risking damage to the grocer's fingers. When the weather grew warmer, the store also offered snow cones, which Stuart could, which Stuart could purchase for a nickel and ask for all the flavors to be added instead of only one or two. Stuart's mother would walk her son back and forth to school each day. He had no homework and learned little during his classes. His teacher, though friendly and caring, taught lessons he'd already learned in second grade at Montgomery or while enrolled in the public school in Brumal. Stuart would often spend the entire day drawing spaceships and colored pencils on his worksheet cover. He passed all the tests, since there was nothing new he hadn't learned already. So he used his time creating various types of spacecraft based on memories he had from Space Cadet and Flash Gordon, which he watched on Saturday mornings when the family had a TV set. During their time in North Philadelphia, Stewart's father received a $500 bonus as an extra payment for his tour of duty in the Pacific during World War II. Though Jim had accrued a lot of debts and owed a lot of money, he didn't use the bonus to pay the money back, but instead bought watches from a pawn shop for the three of them and took his family out for lunch and a movie at the Strand on Broad Street. During their stay on 13th Street, Stuart's father reconnected with his old friend John McCutcheon and spun a story about Dottie's dream of getting back to playing music. Getting back to playing music, despite the fact that she hadn't had a piano for more than two years. Stuart wasn't part of the discussion, but apparently McCutcheon, who had always loved to hear Dottie play, stepped into their lives once more and rescued the family from impoverishment. In July, shortly after Stuart's ninth birthday, his father had a meeting with a talent agent who, on McCutcheon's recommendation, took on the task of representing Dottie with the hope of placing her in clubs and other musical venues in the Philadelphia area. Jim showed up one afternoon in a used 53 Pontiac and announced to the family that they would soon be moving to a one-bedroom apartment in the Philadelphia suburb of Upper Darby. Jim somehow had money enough for publicity photos to be taken of his wife, as well as the retouching of them that would lower the appearance of her age from 43 to her early to mid-30s by erasing the bones in her neck and the worry lines in her face. The day the Littles were scheduled to move into the apartment, a crane appeared in front of the complex on Radbourne Road, along with a fan delivering a baby grand piano that the movers unsuccessfully attempted to swing over the balcony and into the apartment. As the truck left, with the piano still inside, Stuart's mother burst into tears at the loss of the oversized instrument, which later was replaced by a small spinet, cautiously carried up the steps and through the door into the living room of their apartment. In addition to the rental of the spinet in the apartment, musical scores of all the latest tunes arrived in the mail and included the latest songs such as Que Sera, Sera from the film The Man Who Knew Too Much, Till There Was You from the play The Music Man, and I Could Have Danced All Night and On the Street Where You Live from My Fair Lady. Dottie had few clothes other than those she stitched herself, and none suitable to wear to an audition. She also needed gowns required for her performances. One morning, she and Jim disappeared in the Pontiac while Stuart remained at home, alone in the apartment. While away, Dottie was fitted for a new gray suit and two new blouses, a slip, stockings, black high heels, and two new cocktail dresses, one covered by a semi-transparent overlay of black polka dots. 
The second gown was pale yellow with pleated skirt that when she tried it on at home, it reminded Stuart of the Good Witch of the East in the movie The Wizard of Oz. The Littles went to drive-in movies that summer and early fall and took a trip to the Great White Way in New York City. The first week in September, Stuart was enrolled in the fourth grade at Stonehurst Elementary School. Dottie practiced and refreshed her repertoire of standards from the 30s and the 40s and expanded it to include music of a more recent vintage, as provided by the scores received by mail. Jim remained on the wagon as he worked closely with the agent to find appropriate venues for Dottie's return to the spotlight after what Jim called eight years to child-rearing. Dottie joined the Musicians' Union in order to perform professionally. Finally, the evening of her triumphal premiere arrived. She was featured on the small marquee outside the Driftwood Room as one of two pianists who would share the stage that evening from 6.30 until 11 o'clock p.m. The Driftwood Room was a cocktail lounge and restaurant at 60th and Chestnut Street in West Philadelphia. It had seen better days but survived on a base of customers, primarily older males, who enjoyed being entertained by and talking to the women who performed there. Dottie wore her yellow dress and through Stuart's eyes she looked radiant, especially since he'd never seen his mother made up and fashionably dressed. His father wore his only suit with a new arrow shirt and bow tie. The plan was for Jim to drop Dottie off and then return at 10.30 p.m. to pick her up. On her insistence, Jim was not to stay, and she knew he would drink while she was playing, and she didn't want any distractions. Unbeknownst to Dottie, her contract stated that when she wasn't at the piano, she was to talk with guests and drink faux cocktails with them. Although there was no stipulation that she be in any way intimate with the clientele, she was expected to encourage them to buy her drinks and offer lively conversation. Her fellow pianist, Janine, was divorced and had been playing three nights a week at the venue for the past three years. Janine gave Dottie the rundown and the kind of subject she could talk about with customers, as well as how Dottie should respond to inappropriate and suggestive requests encouraged by the alcohol the customers imbibed. Dottie was surprised to learn that her duties extended past her performance at the keyboard as Janine made her aware that music was only part of the reason she was hired. Some years back, I enjoyed a bit of success in the theater and at fancy clubs. Now in my 40s, I have to take whatever gigs I can, said Janine. I use my sense of humor, conversational abilities, and my street smarts more to survive more than I do my playing. I no longer can count on my charm and pretty face to attract and hold the attention of men, but provide sympathy and understanding a skill I didn't have at 25. Pianists are a dime a dozen, she continued. Most men need to feel important, especially to women. So our business is built on stroking their egos and having them return with their friends and even their wives. As I'm now a hostess of the night rather than a cute dish who can play a tune. It had been a long time since Dottie flirted. She was a mother now and had to deal with much greater issues than flattering men. She hated Jim's drinking and couldn't imagine having to talk to drunks, outcasts, and self-important men of any kind. During her first break that evening, she called the neighbors to find out how Stuart was doing, and by the second break that evening, she realized that this career was not for her. She played until the end of the last set and was paid, but was not requested to return. Ten percent was paid to her agent, and a portion of her take put away for union dues. When asked by Jim how the evening went, 
Nadia merely answered, I'm never going to do this ever again. There was never any discussion. Jim got drunk the next evening and kept Dottie and Stuart awake most of the night berating his wife for her spoiled upbringing and feelings of and feelings of privilege while well, he had put everything on the line to help her use her talents to save the family. Jim sold the car illegally since it had been leased by John McCutcheon and he didn't have the title. He was never fully paid for it but couldn't argue with anyone about the price because he never really owned the Pontiac. The piano remained in the apartment until the rent for it was due, and the dresses were relegated to the bedroom closet, never to be worn again. The agent, having heard from the owners about Dottie's performance at the Driftwood Room, refused to find her another booking and resigned, and Jim, greatly embarrassed and knowledgeable about both his failure and that of his wife, never contacted John McCutcheon again. Dottie found a part-time job as a salesgirl in a card shop in the 69th Street shopping district, and Jim borrowed money from whomever was left to believe his stories. In his spare time, he read detective novels, picked up and smoked butts of cigarettes from the street, drew lewd pictures for drinks, and spent the rest of his days playing solitaire and drawing postcards for relatives, remaining friends, and anyone with whom he'd become acquainted. Stewart had never been acquainted with a cockroach until he moved into the 13th Street apartment in North Philadelphia. There were no cockroaches in the house in Havertown, and none in Brumall, or in his aunt's house, or the two rooms rented weekly in Glenside. That all changed when he moved into the city. Stewart was familiar with spiders, mosquitoes, ants, ticks, fleas, bees, grasshoppers, butterflies, and other insects he'd come across outdoors, but he'd never encountered an insect as large or as gross as a roach. His introduction to the insect occurred when Stuart was searching for some nails in a jar in the basement of the house on North 13th Street. The containers holding screws, nails, hinges, and other hardware were on a shelf above the workbench where Stuart was working on a toy model of a spaceship. And when he reached up to the jar to investigate what was inside, as many as a hundred of the fat black insects ran out from it and scattered across the workbench in all directions, causing Stuart to drop the jar and creeping him out enough to run up the stairs and into the apartment. Shortly after that, his father spotted a roach on the kitchen floor and squished it with the toe of his shoe in front of Stuart. A white ooze squeezed out as the insect died, and Jim wiped it up with a piece of toilet paper and threw it in the trash can. Stuart watched his father simply return to the counter and finish making a sandwich. What was that? asked Stuart. That, my son, was a cockroach, a disgusting insect that makes its home inside walls and feasts on crumbs of any food or garbage left around. I saw some downstairs, said Stuart. They were in the basement when I was working on a rocket, in a glass jar filled with screws. Most likely the jars hadn't been cleaned properly before they were used as a container, answered Jim. They like living in the dark, so the jar must have been kept out of the light. Yes, said Stuart. Why haven't I seen them before, asked Stuart. Because we're now living in a row home in the city filled with the dirty vermin who climb along pipes and electrical lines and make their homes between the walls of buildings wedged together. They're not easy to kill with insecticides and will probably take over the world, the little bastards. So there are many of them here? 
probably more than we could possibly know. Sometimes at night I can hear them hissing after the lights are out. And you're not scared of them? asked Stuart. I lived with lots worse during the war. There were huge ones in Hawaii, more than four inches long. But they didn't bite and don't carry disease, so we learned to live with them. When can we move from here, Dad? I'm working on it, son. Until then, you'll just have to learn to put up with them and kill them when you can. One night, when Stuart and his parents returned home from dinner at Aunt Lizzie's house, the upstairs hallway light was off and they entered the kitchen in the dark. When Dottie turned on the lights, thousands of black cockroaches scattered from around the room to safety under the sink and cabinets and into the crevices they could find, and into any crevice they could find. Stuart ran to his parents' bed, which was still pulled down and crossed over to his cot, checking to see if there were any bugs in his bed. He had a difficult time sleeping that night and woke his mother up to ask if he could leave a light on in the kitchen to keep the huge bugs away. As he ran to the kitchen, he heard them hiss, and as he turned on the lights, he saw them scatter. When Stuart asked his mother about roaches, she told him that she knew of them, but never had them in her home growing up because her mother kept a clean house. Uncle Jack can't see well enough to keep the place clean, she told him, and even Aunt Lizzie and Aunt Emma have a problem with them, but they won't hurt you. When they moved to Upper Darby, Stuart soon encountered a grosser type of bug, much bigger and with wings. He spotted it one night while in the bathtub, as it wiggled out, antenna first, from the overflow drain above the spigot. Stuart jumped up soaking wet and ran out of the bathroom without even a towel. Fortunately, no one else was in the house except his mother, who wondered what had chased Stuart away. When she found out, she laughed. Yes, Stuart, those are water bugs, another type of roach. It seems that vermin are everywhere in my life now, along with all of the disgusting people I have to deal with. When they moved to the second floor of a twin on Richfield Road behind the Lit Brothers store, Stuart hoped that since they shared a house with only one wall separating them from their neighbors, that there would be no more roaches in his life, but he soon discovered otherwise, after hearing a rattling in a paper bag on the floor of his room, and when he opened it out popped a black roach. This type of incident became an occurrence that happened over and over again, as he was opening a closet or using a bathroom, but the most disgusting encounter was a time when he was peeling potatoes for his mother and found three roaches munching inside one that he'd just picked up. Fortunately, after moving from his parents' home to Springfield, he never encountered a roach again until years later, when traveling with his wife, Louise, on a trip to Savannah, Georgia. The couple arrived during the day and later were dining at a recommended restaurant along the riverfront when Stuart visited the men's room and spotted a large palmetto bug climbing up the wall. He finished quickly and returned to his table, not mentioning the bug, but scanning the walls and curtains for others. Finding none, the couple finished their meal and began their walk back to the B&B where they were staying. Ascending from the river walk to the street, he noticed movement on the ground and watched as a sea of small roaches scampered across the sidewalk and parted into the darkness. Louise barely took notice of the bug, but a cockroach of any kind unnerved Stuart, reminding him of poverty, neglect, and lack of control, he felt, being invaded by the intruders in his past life. Stuart and Louise traveled to Charleston next, and as he ran in the early morning on the walkway by the river, he sighted small roaches scurrying along the edges of the pavement. The couple's final destination was New Orleans, a city where the ubiquitous bugs were difficult to avoid, 
and at that point Stuart knew it was best for him to avoid Florida and other southern states as much as possible, ever mindful of the creatures along with the life he left behind. Stuart thought that success could keep him free of the most distasteful memories of poverty, such as the package of chicken necks his mother had the grocer split because she didn't have enough money for the full package, and the horse meat hamburgers that had a taste he couldn't cover up with ketchup. His symbols were all still lurking in his subconscious until he became celebrated and as successful as a cartoonist and created a comic strip called Kafka based on the Czech author's novella Metamorphosis in which the protagonist is transformed into a giant roach. The strip, which Stewart wrote and illustrated, ran for several years in newspapers throughout the world. Its storyline was based on current news and featured a roach dressed as a businessman, storekeeper, carpenter, or a member of the clergy. Stories ranged from three panels to several frames, and in each the roach tried his best to communicate his point of view. But no matter how fine he dressed, and how well-spoken, civil, honest, or correct the roach named Gregor was, the bottom line was that he always was, in fact, a cockroach. Sometimes Stuart drew panels containing two cockroaches talking side by side. In the cartoon, one would speak and the other would listen, until the final panel. The reader didn't know which one spoke, or who was right, and who was wrong, because they still remained cockroaches, and no one could learn anything from a cockroach. As did Charles Schultz's comic strip Peanuts and Gary Larson's single panel at the far side, Stuart Little's uncomfortable tale on life sold well. The dark and brooding tales required time for a viewer reader to fully grasp the meaning pervading each of Stuart's tales. Unlike most strips that continued until the creator lost interest, retired, or no longer found an audience for syndication, Stuart Little's Kafka maintained its following and took several weeks to build into a chilling and bewildering conclusion. When asked about the ending, simply answered, Gregor told the tale, and now it's done, so why ask me? An interviewer might ask, yes, but you delivered a message to the world through the character you invented. Little responded honestly, I know no more than you do of the mind of a cockroach. I began life as a mouse, and I found my way to becoming a human. Gregor Samsa started out as a human and became a cockroach. I'm no more responsible for his transformation than he is for mine, and hopefully I'll be able to tell my story before my time is up, as did he. Fortunately for Stuart Little, he had more time than Gregor did to explain himself, but as Little would often say, does anyone ever have enough time for that luxury?